Hello and welcome for the first time since quite a while ago, I think mid to late October, to Football Unfocused, the superb, world-leading, world-breaking football-related podcast hosted by two losers <laughs> and chancers by the name of Mark <laughs> and Matthew. I am Mark. Matthew, say hello. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hello, Matthew. Yeah, I'm really well, thanks. Yeah, yeah it's good to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me a month to to get the extra S out of unfocus, so I think that that mm. probably justified the the slight delay. Is that how we're going to account for the? Um, the delay <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's the excuse, the best excuse I've come up with. Yeah, yeah, that's up there with the dog at my homework, isn't it? <laughs> it took me a month to remove an S from a logo, and in what way does the logo affect our ability to produce a podcast? Anyway, it's very technical. Mark. Mm, yeah. mm. I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't understand. I, <laughs> yeah, if I told you, you just yeah, my head would explode. Yeah, I don't get it. You do the you do the you do the clever <laughs> stuff. I just fucking turn up and talk about football. Yeah, I should yeah. poke my nose out. So, anything to report, Matthew? Twenty <laughs> third of October, wasn't it? Last time we did yeah. one of these aquatic uh, well, waste fo- of time. <laughs> uh, football related. Things yeah, discuss. Matthew. I mean, this is yeah, a football yeah. podcast. I've got a so. couple of points. Oh, excellent! Right, save that then. Okay, <laughs> okay. This is, this, but, well, because I want to, you know, start as I always start, Matthew. Oh. We're finding out a little bit more about the mystery behind the man, Matthew. In your, I was going to say humble abode, but that's playing it down. In your palatial uh, castle of a residence, <laughs> of a flat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're soon to be moving into a house, so you know you're you're definitely going up in the world. You're part of build back better. You are you're level. You're being leveled up, uh, Matthew. Um, in that uh, abode, Matthew, do you have any house plants? And if so, how many? Uh, yeah, we've got quite a few actually. Maybe Ooh. about six. I six mean, house I plants. That's very I interesting. Let me. Know. Sorry, I'm just going to write that down. Six house plants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't purchase them. Joe did. Mm. Um, and does Joe and got, allow you any responsibility for keeping those plants alive and I, healthy? I don't. I think she knows. You know, she's never asked me, and I've yeah. never offered. I think there's sort of a, a, a an, an understanding. Unspoken, yeah, an understanding mm. that I would only bring harm to these. You know, unsuspecting plants. And yeah, I mean, I personally plastic, we got a few plastic ones as well. <laughs> yeah, fake, fake, fake plastic trees. <laughs> do you? Do you? Yeah, because I wouldn't be comfortable with you having, or touching, or having any impact upon any living organism. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, do you, are you aware of what type of house plants you own? Uh, ones a a sucker. No, no, it's not a sucker plant. One's a one's an aloe vera. Aloe vera. <laughs> oh, aloe vera. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's probably that's why I remember that one because mm. I'll just say that and then yeah, because of your sort of camp response. Yeah. To it, so, yeah. As I'm yeah, prancing good. around the flat. Yeah, going oh aloe vera. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you've got an aloe vera and a sucker. Are you saying? I mean. Uh, do you mean I don't a, think it is. I mean, a I'm not sure what plant. you mean. No. Well, they're no. they're like little cactus. No, they're like little yeah cactus. Yeah, there is a term for them which when oh, I watched Gardens Succulents. World, 
succulents, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So one is a, a non specific succulent and one's aloe vera. Okay, I've heard enough. I'm bored of talking about plants now. Now, Matthew, you revealed to me uh, in the uh, in our brief uh, catch up prior to pressing record that you actually may have some observations about football over the last couple of weeks that you'd like to talk about. So yeah. before I uh, before I start banging on about what I'm going to bang on about, regardless of what you say, uh, please the floor is yours. Well, so I've got two points. One is a bit yeah. more light hearted than the other. Oh, so maybe I'll start right. with the, the more light-hearted one. No, no, go heavy. Okay, well, I was going to talk about Patrick Evra's revelations of when he was um, abused as a child. Oh, God. Shall I go right. to the light-hearted one? I mean, we could talk We could talk about that if you like. I mean, there's, Kieran Dyer's got very similar stories, and it's, it's horrible. It's obviously abhorrent. Um, and obviously, you know, over the last few years there's been all sorts of disgusting revelations that have come out of uh all that 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 scumbag barry bennell and basically everyone he ever was involved with coaching all the clubs he ever was at you know particularly crew and man city in the uh, the 80s and the amount of professional players who had to um carry that with them their whole lives yeah it's horrendous but I haven't looked in detail at Evra. What, what, what specifically? So he he was basically he was at a school um, that was that was sort of seen as a nurturing ground for high performing footballers, and his sort of I guess commute you'd call it, but his sort of bus and train into school was so far. He was getting so tired. That the was it Clairefontaine? Was it was it Clairefontaine? That's the uh, the, the sort of oh, national maybe... academy in France where know. all their great players have gone through. And uh, the headmaster said, um, well, you can stay with me, you know, and he was sort of seen as this authoritarian figure. And, and he was just, he described how he, the head, the headmaster would sort of, there was kind of this routine, the headmaster would kind of come into his room and uh, and Evera would like tie a drawstring around his pyjamas and like put underwear on, pyjamas over the top and he'd the headmaster would come in and it would he was almost like it would be a, a slight almost wrestling game. He would sort of pretend he was kind of asleep, but at the same time try and push him away. And the headmaster was clearly sort of touching himself whilst trying to also touch um Evra and um and this went on for a few months. Um and then he said to his mum, he goes, I'm not going back to his house and she, he never told her why. And um, but then he said on the last night, because the headmaster kind of knew that it was the last time, it kind of took went to the next level. It kind of slightly got the better of him. Um, but it was, I guess, what really, you know, of you know, so many terrible things about the story. But he was also saying how he only told his mum a few weeks ago um, in the build up to the book that's. It's his, you know, his autobiography so far. So he told his mum, and she, you know, he said that was the worst thing about the whole experience in some ways because his mum was just absolutely traumatized. Mm. Um, and and she was like, "Don't, you can't tell, you can't, you shouldn't be telling people this." And he said, "No, no, this is for the next those kids um, out there that." possibly in a similar situation and he said and he said his biggest regret was 
when he was playing for Monaco, I think, he was actually yep. contacted by um, the French police, the French authorities. And they said, you know, we've got some information that would suggest that the headmaster um, has been sort of, um, you know, abusing children in his care. We know that you were under his care. Can you, you know, did you have any, did you have any, any abuse? Um, and he just denied it. He said, no, it's absolutely, he said, it, mm. and uh, he said, the more they sort of kind of said, well, you know, you were staying in this house, the more, you know, he was, he was uh, adamant that he didn't. And he said, you know, that may have, if I'd have dubbed him in, I could have, maybe that might have saved some more or, you know, stopped some more kids getting abused themselves. And so he says that was almost his biggest regret that he didn't speak up. And he, and he referenced sort of toxic masculinity around, yeah. cause he was, cause I don't, I mean, obviously I don't really know much about football, but he no, kind of within no. this article, it's Come all on. talked about. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, he, he was in quite a few basically punch ups with, you know, different people like, the marshals. Uh, it was having a fight with a. Was there a marshal at a particular ground who was kind of goading yeah. him? And he just went just over for the purposes of the tape in football, we commonly refer to them as stewards. Oh, stewards, marshals, yeah, marshals, marshals yeah. for you for you F one fans out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, just um, yeah. He's had he's had a career that has been. Uh, there's been times of real like sort of flashpoints. I mean, he yeah. was responsible in 2010 for kind of leading a rebellion of French players against uh, their own manager and stuff like that. But yeah, and you, who knows what impacts um, these these traumatic experiences have on the formation of people's characters. I mean, the thing is, this that story is all you know completely consistent with all of the stories about um, players who who suffered abuse. Um, in this country that has kind of come to light over the last five years or so. And so much of it, you, you talk about that moment there when, um, when he had the opportunity to kind of share information about an abuser that could have, um, that could have prevented other, you know, protected other people. Yeah. That was at a time when he was at Monaco. That was a relatively formative stage of his career. It was, you know, he was probably on the verge of a big move to Old Trafford and, and he, and so the combination of that kind of wanting to, just get his head down, forget about it and focus on his career, worried about the impact that would have on his career. And also, like you say, the toxic masculinity, the shame of being a victim and the shame of the nature of the uh, offences. You know, I think it's it's one of the things that for young men in particular, um, are you know, that, that, that must be a huge psychological struggle to be in such a kind of masculine environment and to have to kind of fess up publicly to having been the victim of something that is so... You know, because a lot of men, I'd like to think it's changing, but I think a lot of men go through life assuming that only a woman would ever be the subject of um, of mm. such horrendous um, sort of circumstances and activity. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's. I mean, you look at the amount of atrocities that have come out, of, you know, um, related to the the church, you know, various religious, I mean, the Catholic church in particular over the years. And, you know, that's, um, you know, that, 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 that's heavily weighted towards sort of young boys. And it, you know, that, that the extent to which that can fuck your head for the rest of your life is, should never, ever be underestimated. The, 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 the stuff around Barry Bennell and the, the really amazing, um, and, you know, incredibly emotional, um, and gut wrenching 
documentary series that was on the BBC earlier this year. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking and infuriating to watch because so much of this was happening in plain sight. You know, the 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 culture of the time just allowed these these kind of monsters and predators to um, to essentially do whatever they wanted. Now, boys unnecessarily staying around their houses, and because they were seen as like the gateway into professional a life of professional football, it was never quite. It was like an honour to be invited. Same, you know, it even goes back as far as someone like Jimmy Savile. All right, that's not related to football, but that's how these people kind of get away with it. The, the kind of the audacity and the nonchalance of it, um, and using their positions of sort of power and trust to to just get away with the most he you know heinous crimes so yeah that's a grim 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 story yeah. and um yeah what's your light-hearted one <laughs> yeah sorry it's very better doing it this way um is how they may be trialing well they're trialing drinking in stadiums and yep. they're going to be trialing terrace Standing areas. I don't, what's, I don't see what's lighthearted about that. That's a fundamental. That's a fundamental change to the, the nature <laughs> well, of the, the game. Drink, yeah. No, it is. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, the drinking to me, I, 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 know, I could. I know you're get quite real, passionate about that. I'm, I'm passionate about both of these issues <laughs> because, um, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a passionate supporter of the club that went through the uh, Hillsborough disaster, I don't think there's anything that has had a um, kind of more would have such a kind of profound impact on a club than you know 97 as it is now unfortunately of their um supporters being uh, 97 of supporters having the life crushed out of them due to um you know a mixture of negligence and incompetence and all sorts of other sort of horrendous things and then a sort of 30-year cover-up and so let's not forget that the return to any sort of uh, legitimised standing in football grounds is the first time since the aftermath of Hillsborough. It's it is an, an enormous deal um, because you know I guess a big part of the last thirty years has been getting the balance between safety and atmosphere. And there's no doubt that atmosphere in grounds has been sanitised and has suffered um, as a result of everyone being required to to sit rather than stand. You know you go go to a gig, where's all the action and uh, the atmosphere um, and the energy at a gig? It's in the the, the, the um, standing area down. It's not the people sitting on the edges, sort of, you know, politely clapping along. It's the people really feeling it. And it's exactly the same. Football, my, my first experiences of going to football when I was first taken by my dad in like the late 1980s at Ipswich was always, I was always stand, you know, I'd take a box to stand on and go with my dad and my granddad. And it was absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, i uh, even at Anfield now, with um, with it being all seated, I'm tend to tend to be on the cop, and um, and I'll be you know standing throughout. Like no one no one sits down in that stand whatsoever. So they have it, you could see it coming for a number of years now. They've started introducing from on, on the cop from this this season onwards, and I think it's true of most grounds. And you know you can see around the uh, the UK that they've got um, these rails that are designed to be able to stand more safely and comfortably that you can sort of lean on. So they're in kind of in front of the seats. And I'd imagine the terraces, rather than going to a complete right, just pack them in um, until it's kind of, you know, until that's at the limit of what is safe. I doubt, I very much doubt they'll go down that road. I'd imagine they'll be like, um, you know, probably getting the, maybe slightly more people in a row than they would under seating, but probably a similar amount and just allowing them to stand and having kind of rails in front so that there's a safe distance between them. But 
it, it is a big, and I think, you know, you, you throw in the drinking thing, you know, it's, I've always regarded it as, as the most absurdly patronising and demeaning thing. And part of the, 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 the Thatcherite dehumanisation of football supporters um, that stems from like the, the, the sort of late seventies all the way through the nineteen eighties, re- really just treating people like animals. That ultimately results in the Bradford Fire and Hillsborough and and um, all sorts of other terrible things that were going on at the time. You know the the amount shouldn't be underestimated. The amount of times they were very nearly disasters as well, including a, a, a an FA Cup semi final, I believe, the one or two years before Hillsborough involved in Tottenham, where there was a very very close shave, and all the warning signs were there and, and ignored that could have saved you know um, many many lives. Um, so the, the, this idea that football supporters are animals and can't be trusted to have a drink um, whilst watching the game at the same time, whereas a uh, you know some tweed wearing ball sack of a human um, who goes and watches rugby um, because they're middle class and they've come from the shires to watch it and they've pulled up at Twickenham in their Range Rover that they, they, they can, but football fans can't. Same with cricket. You can go to cricket and drink all day long get mind-numbingly pissed and it's kind of embraced as part of the culture of that uh, of watching that sport but football you're there for 90 minutes but you have to pack in all your drink into you know a small 15 minute window at half time or before and after the game and uh, and then you have to get it down here and you, but you couldn't possibly um then just drink a little bit more calmly and just go back to your your seat or, or stand and have a pint and it's outrageous and it's such an outdated point of view and it's it's only ever supported by people who who know absolutely nothing about modern football or what it's like in a football stadium or how the culture around the game has changed so if they do change that that would be incredibly welcome incredibly welcome and high time and i think that um safe standing is a progressive development. I don't think there's any danger that they would go back to the unsafe um, days of the past. And uh, so, you know, I think it, and it, anything that has a positive impact on atmosphere and also gives the opportunity for clubs to offer more um, uh, tickets to supporters at lower prices as well, increase the number of lower price tickets is a great thing. Get more younger people into the ground as well. That's really, really important. You know, terraces used to be the places where, you know, when kids start going to football and they want to go with their mates... And they were able to get tickets in a way that's almost impossible now. Literally, you turn up on the day with a group of five kids from your school or your college or whatever, and you all go and stand together. That's impossible now, at, certainly at the big clubs, where the demand for tickets and the price of tickets makes it nigh impossible. And, you know, you have to be on sort of waiting lists and membership schemes just to get in the ground. And when you do, you kind of have to take your ticket or your seat wherever you can get it, and you're not even necessarily guaranteed to be together. So... It's a, I think it's a really, really good thing. They're trialling it with four or five clubs at the beginning of next year, I believe. So it's, mm. it's actually happening this season. And if it goes well, you know, long may it thrive. I think it'll be a really, really good thing. And it will be nice as well for those that don't want to stand. Because at the moment, you know, if you're, say you're, um, you know, my, my Champions League Liverpool tickets, for example, that it's like a, you know, a season ticket. For, so I'm in the same spot for every game. And if you didn't want the stand and you re- you just happen to find yourself in that area of um, of the cop, you're absolutely screwed because every you know there's the railings there because it's far enough back and and everyone's standing and you wouldn't be able to see a thing or if you're there with your kids and you know they have to end up standing on the bar or sitting on the bar, so it allows people to make an informed adult choice about right okay I want I'm want to I go to football because I love the energy and I want to be really involved in the singing and the, all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, so I'll, I, I want to go and stand. And someone else might be, well, 
you know, I'm a bit knackered for this and, you know, I haven't really got the energy. I like to sit down or I've got a kid with me or whatever. And they can, they can sit. And yeah, so I, th- I think that's a really, really fantastic move. And uh, I really hope it works and, you know, and it can be done safely. And it's not a, I think it's the right time to do it. I think that, you know, there was a long period of time where it would have almost been a, a kind of, you know, disrespect to the things that had happened as a consequence of terracing. But, but that, we should always remember they didn't happen as a consequence of terracing. They happened as a consequence of neglect and dehumanisation um, and treating people like cattle as opposed to the uh, terrorists themselves. Okay. Um, yeah, so is, it, is there anything else you wanted to add on that? I mean, do you, what do you... No, what do you, well, is what there you anything more that? that's happened in football in the last month? I mean, there's a couple <laughs> of things, Matt. Yeah. A couple of things You're I was going to mention. <laughs> Well, okay, okay. So let, let let's let's think that you know the last time we recorded a podcast, uh, it was the you know it was released on Saturday, twenty third of October. The day after that, I think, I think if memory serves, there might have been quite a significant football match at Old Trafford with quite a quite a um, quite an interesting result. Um, I I can't remember. But I, I know that I know that you know very unusually um, the the Mike, the biggest club in the world lost a home game. They lost five nil against their historic no, biggest rivals. Crowing over not 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 crowing, Matthew. In fact, that that's the very point I was about to make uh, next. Oh, okay. Because you know, I think I think a lot of I think a lot of people in those one of the things I really have always distanced myself from in terms of um, football. Um, fan and I don't even think it is football fan culture I think it's what I always call the sky sports generation football fan culture this idea <laughs> that and it's always it always gets um included in um sort of say there's a tv drama or an advert or something that's kind of based on an interpretation of what football fans are like normally made or directed by someone who knows absolutely fuck all about football and they'll always have this idea that when there's a result say there's like a group of mates and one team beats another one then the one that wins rings the other one and goes ah you know and all that and like ah we beat you and like (laughs) fuck off most people are not like that now I I you know I happen to uh, support Liverpool and I happen to strongly dislike um with pretty much every fiber of my being the uh, the team that we beat 5-0 on their own turf that day and and uh, prob- could have beaten by 8 or 9 if we hadn't treated the whole of the second half like a training session um but but I don't I've never really got into that it's just just move on like yeah it's fantastic you enjoy it on the day and it's brilliant and then just move on but the point I want the reason the only reason I'm bringing this up it's not it's not genuinely not to crow about it it's to it's interesting to talk about the the concepts of dominance right because the last few weeks you know the the fact that they then went and lost um you know they got comprehensively outplayed by by Man City again on their own turf could have lost by damn damn sight more they got humiliated away at Watford last week you know so they've had a catastrophic run of results and it you know so they're not going to win the league this season so that means that's going to be a minimum now of 9 years without winning the title and it just i just cast my mind back to the latter years of Alex Ferguson's sort of what did he have 20 26 years 27 years or something at old trafford which was you know after after he kind of got his um got his hold you know hold of the team and turned them into a kind of winning machine after three or four seasons which which, as everyone knows, you wouldn't you wouldn't be given that time now. But he was, and great for them. And they had a period of sort of unparalleled dominance for sort of twenty odd years. 
Um, and I remember distinctly having conversations with uh, supporters of them. Um, you can't see the inverted commas that I just put the word supporters in. Uh, not a lot of match attending going along with some of these people, but but uh, but but supporters of them, people who like to see them do well um, from the sofa watching Sky, and uh, who would be so kind of bl- sure and blasé that they had reached a, spe- a spell whereby, regardless of who the manager was, that their dominance, because they were so big, their dominance would just last forever because it just would, like almost like the too big to fail um, uh, principle. And I used to try and explain that this wasn't from the point of view of a Liverpool fan who wants them to fail. This is the point of view of someone who just knows a bit about football and has looked at the history of football, that that is absolutely impossible. No dominance lasts forever. Football is cyclical and you have to accept that. Liverpool won the league title in 1990. Prior to that, they had essentially had 30 years or just under 30 years of consistently winning League titles, European Cups, and even in the seasons when they weren't winning league titles and European Cups, they were in the the fight to win them, you know, so they were an elite club. There was a little period of time in the late 1960s when Bill Shankly's kind of first generation team was fading into Bill Shankly's second generation team where they had a bit of a dip and weren't really in the conversation, but then they came back with a vengeance in the, in the early 1970s. So it was pretty much a, a, like a, a you know a, a dynasty of success, and that went, and and the thing that made that, that different as well is that transcended more than just one manager. It wasn't like failure, failure, failure. One manager, amazing, back to failure. It was you know three, four managers. You know, Bill Shankly was in charge for I think fifteen. Uh, years uh, from 1959 to 1974 and then Bob Paisley 74 to 83 Joe Fagan had his season in which they won three trophies the European Cup the league the league cup and then uh, I think five seasons of of, of Kenny during which we won uh, two league titles and two or, or was it three yeah three league titles and uh, two FA Cups and then but then it stopped it absolutely stopped they made uh, uh, re- some really poor Management now. See if anything's familiar here. They made really poor management appointments based on sentimentality and what that what partic- what certain individuals meant to the club and their relationship and affinity with supporters and their connection with the period of success, rather than cold hard reality of what can they offer in modern day football. What does what are the requirements of this club? What are the requirements of this team? And they made and they made the mistake of always thinking that they were just one or two big-name superstar signings away from assuming the dominance that they had before. And it failed. You know, Liverpool throughout the 1990s, it was it was ludicrous the amount of times they thought, OK, we're just, we're just you know, we're a Stan Collymore or a Paul Lintz or a Carlines Riedler or whatever, whatever the case may be, or, you know, bloody Neil Ruddock, uh, away from being right back where we were, you know, and, and we never were. We had some spells during that time where we um, got in the sort of top two or three, but we allowed ourselves to um, completely slip away and be surpassed by not just uh, the dominant the dominance from Old Trafford, but also, you know, Arsenal went um, way above us during that time and even, even at spells... Uh, Newcastle as well and we were we you know we were never a million miles away but we had a couple of seasons where we finished like sort of you know seventh and eighth and stuff and and it's a long long road back 
But you just, that is part of football. You have to accept that. And, and at the moment, you could look at football now and you could say, oh, Liverpool, Chelsea and Man City are so far away in terms of standards of everyone else. They've got elite coaches. They've got amazing players. They're ripping it up in the Champions League and domestically. Oh, it's never ending. Of course it will end. Of course it will end. At some point, Jurgen Klopp will leave Liverpool. Pep Guardiola uh, will leave. Chelsea's maybe a little bit different because their business model has been not really related to individual managers they've they 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 hire and fire in a way that conventional wisdom will tell you will lead to disastrous results and yet they hire and fire and just keep winning trophies so they're they're they're, they're, an ama- they're amazing really you know it pains me to admit it but they really are absolutely amazing so who knows what will happen i mean Tuchel will leave and they'll 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 bring in another headline coach but Tuchel at the moment looks like he could he could you know if he carries on like this could end up being their their longest serving manager in a long period of time so what I'm, but, but those clubs will not be in that position forever. You know, no matter no matter how much money they've got, no matter no matter how many digital subscribers they've got, no matter how many shirts they sell in in um, you know Thailand and Vietnam and India, it doesn't matter. Football is cyclical, and no dominance lasts forever. Liverpool will take a back seat uh, again at some stage, and. Uh, Manchester United will get themselves a new manager and finally make some sound strategic decisions, get their act in gear, because they are the extent to which they are too big to fail in that is that they spend such ludicrous amounts of money um, and and seem to have a, you know, a, a kind of um, an unlimited um, reserve of money that at some stage you throw enough darts at a board, they're going to get it right. Of course, they're going to get it right. And, and they will be back. And it's just being kind of as a football fan, you just have to kind of be mature enough to realize that whether you're whether it's at the stage where your club are at the top of that tree or just a little bit further down and i you know so the lesson in there is just enjoy the moments when you're doing well savor every single day of it and and then don't be a bitch when it starts going wrong just just accept it you know just just there's no point fighting the tide like you know there are even um examples of it so our um our Iberian um, fan club, uh, the Iberian wing of the huge football unfocused family, suggested that it would be worth having a look at what's going on in Spain at the moment as an interesting example, because there are no, despite all this bollocks that the likes of Robbie Savage and uh, other sort of numbskull morons in the in the um, in the football punditry media like to knock out about what makes a club the biggest club in the world and they always you know it's so easy to say oh man united can't carry on like this the biggest club in the world by what criteria who makes these rules real madrid have won the champions league the biggest club competition in the world 13 times right um and they are they are from the very formation of european club football they are the most successful and dominant team they got what a 90,000 capacity stadium which is full every week and they're followed all the way around the world particularly latin america where everyone who grows up in in south america wants to be a um a real madrid or barcelona player barcelona biggest uh capacity of any club in european football you know Again, a very strong case to being, uh, you know, the biggest club in the world. You know, particularly if you based it on the 21st century, where it's incredible. You know, the number of European Cups, number of that they produced, in my opinion, the greatest club team the world has ever seen. Certainly in my lifetime, that Guardiola era from about 2000 and sort of seven, eight to 2012. I've never seen a team play football like that, and 
not sure I ever will. You know, amazing in every single way. But they are both less so now. Real Madrid, who are now depressingly top of the table again. But they are both massively struggling. And you just said a few years ago that it was, it's impossible that Barcelona could go into their last group game in a Champions League looking like they could well not make it through the group because they've got to play Bayern Munich away and avoid defeat uh, or, or have another result go in their favour in order to, to get through. And no one seems to have a lot of faith that they're going to be able to do that. And their stadium's kind of like a third fall for a lot of their games. And Real Madrid this season lost to a Moldovan team in the in the Champions League, and yeah, they're, they're going to get through. But the top of Spanish football at the moment, so you've got like Real Sociedad, who are only a point behind Real Madrid. You've got Sevilla, who are always kind of in and around that anyway, who are next. And even uh, Rayo Vallecano, described by our Iberian um, club as the first, uh, or the, the, the uh, I think the last Barrio club to make it into like the top six. So in other words, like a proper sort of club from, uh, you know, sort of of the people. I mean, that's so that's on kind of the outskirts of Madrid. And a kind of sub, quite a sub-subject, which is quite interesting, is the number of Madrid-based teams that are in that top section of, of, of um, the Spanish league and probably only really comparable to England in terms of... Because I've always banged on about that. I think there's too many London teams in the Premier League and, um, um, you know, Spain are kind of with Madrid falling into that category. But then... No one's got anything to worry about. If you look at Argentina, where pretty much half the top division are, are all Buenos Aires teams. But that's showing, look, and, 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 and you don't even need to go that much further back. You go to the early part of this century, there were seasons there where uh, Deportivo La Coruña won the league, Valencia won the league, um, uh, Real Sociedad, I remember, in the, about 2003-04, where they still had Javi Alonso, were putting in a really strong challenge. And there were kind of other clubs like Alaves got to the um, UEFA Cup uh, final and stuff like that. So you do have spells, not just in England, which is largely considered to be kind of the most competitive league in terms of the number of clubs that could conceivably challenge. But all leagues, uh, at some point, will see the the dominance of one club subside and then some others coming through. And sometimes it's uh, surprising teams. And it's, it's great because I guess if there was never an end to dominance, then... What's the point in watching football? You know, even as a even as a Liverpool fan, I don't think if you gave me the option of I'll oh, press this button and it means Liverpool will win every trophy for the rest of your life, I wouldn't press that button. It'd be ridiculous. Like you don't you can't enjoy success unless you failed. You know, they always say never trust someone on their on their um uh, C V unless there's a failure in there because you can't truly kind of grow and learn and develop unless you have experienced failure, and um, and yeah, it's just it's just a, a you know a demonstration of that. But I guess Matthew, as a Spurs fan, you must it must be <laughs> yeah, difficult yeah. for you. It must be difficult for you to imagine what failure looks like. Yeah, we're on the way up again now. We've sorted it all Are out you? now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the result last night in the uh, Europa League possibly wow, says otherwise. It. <laughs> it's all going to be all right. You've got Antonio Conte now. Everything's going to be fine. Players who have whose careers have fallen off a cliff and have underperformed and shown a diabolically poor attitude for a, three managers consecutively now um, are suddenly going to be better because Antonio Conte is there. So, so that, I'm sure that will work out brilliantly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and he's got a history of sticking around at every club as well, so he'll <laughs> well, he'll definitely exactly. be there. He he'll be there he in ten years' time. The job is done. He'll be there in ten yeah. years' time, still hoping that Delhi he can get the best out of Delhi Alley. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, I think we've actually been re- uh, unusually concise with time there, Matthew. So uh, unless you've got anything else to add, which I doubt you have. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, do you? Wait, let me... No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Let no. me just think. Uh, no, definitely not. Yeah. OK. So as you've got nothing else to add, then uh, a nicely wrapped up um, time consistent or considerate uh, podcast in the bag. Nice one. See you next week, everyone. We're back. Football unfocused. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. Tell the world. Follow us on Twitter at f unfocused. Do it. Yeah.